0: Welcome to InScope, the healthcare security podcast. Each episode, we bring you interviews, technical tips, and a unique point of view on the challenges facing the ever-changing healthcare ecosystem. Here's your host, Mike Murray. Today with us, we have Esmond Kane. Esmond serves as the uh, chief information security officer at Stewart Healthcare, just uh, up in the Northeast, outside of Boston. He's a well-known thought leader and expert on digital transformation and security, especially in healthcare. He's been around for a long time, just like uh, a lot of us. Esmond's been doing this for over 20 years. Previously, he was the deputy CISO at Partners, Partners Healthcare up in Boston and uh, just really smart guy who I'm really excited to have around and, and to chat about all the uh, interesting things that have been going on for the life of a healthcare CISO in the last few months. So Esmond, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, $10 as promised for all that nice words (laughs) and flattery.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Actually, it's one of the things that I find most uncomfortable about things like this is when someone else is reading my bio and I have to just sit there quietly. So it was fun for me to get to do it to somebody else for once because usually I'm the one sitting uh, while my bio is being read. But uh, welcome. And so one of the things I wanted to start with is, you know, you and I talked a few months ago when you were sort of in the midst of COVID and it seemed like because you're in the Northeast and obviously I'm in New York, we kind of went through this at the beginning, you know, in a lot of ways you're on the other side of it and not on the other side of it as the case is like, how did it change things for you? How was your experience? What do you see? You know, what just, what are your thoughts on the last six months? It's been quite a time to be a healthcare CISO.
1: Yeah. And I'd only just joined. I'm just coming up on 12 months. So COVID has been leading out my last six months. It's been interesting. So, you know, to our organization's credit, they had, uh, taken action pretty early and they jumped into creating the nation's first covid dedicated facility this is prior to some of those hotspots in new york really becoming a problem space and uh, you know carney hospital over here in in massachusetts uh, we dedicated that facility we took together all the staffing those kinds of tiger team efforts all that ppe all those ventilators and uh, we also were flying people in from the other nation the other states to um, to see what we were doing and, and what it was like to go to a hotspot. So we dealt with the immediate issue in, in Massachusetts being a hotspot, not as bad as New York, thankfully, and fingers crossed, not in future either. And hopefully some of that prep that we had done will also help uh, these other states that are now going through their own uh, increase, uh, which is quite severe. We do have facilities also in Florida and in Texas, and we focus on that kind of community healthcare perspective so that Transition of this being an urban to a rural kind of issue, we're there. And to my organization's credit, and to my leadership's credit, um, they thought ahead, they prepared, they put together a lot of the things that I think hopefully have benefited Massachusetts and, and New York, and hopefully they'll now be having effect in in these other states that we serve. It's just a nobody could have anticipated this. You and I had spoken a little bit about whatever your planning looked like prior to this. You know, it really did survive first contact, patient zero. It really tested. And what it tested was the organization's resilience. And uh, as a relatively new security leader to this space, I had to come up to speed quickly. And it was, it was a, a baptism of fire, as it were. It, it was interesting. It was enjoyable. It was terrifying. And it was also tragic. You know, we took those necessary expediences and hopefully we'll continue to reap the benefit.
0: Yeah. And you guys, uh, I mean, you guys were, you had the luck of foresight, right? I, I don't want to say you were lucky in the, because it was preparation, but you had the, the opportunity to have been somewhat prepared. I don't remember if it was you and I, we had this conversation, but uh, I think somebody, somebody said to me that this was an opportunity for, especially for healthcare, to undergo five years of digital transformation in three months. You've been living that like, and especially from the security perspective, like how do you feel about that? How is that? What do you see, you know, what's your thoughts on on that? It's just been a lot compressed into very little time.
1: Yeah, I mean, that digital transformation was the necessary expediency to adopt cloud in a dramatic fashion. A lot of it was communication technologies, collaboration technologies, there's, there's a huge burden immediately on on work from home. These were all measures that, that a lot of organizations or competing industry verticals perhaps have have taken in the past. But healthcare, up until relatively recently, still had that big plant mentality. They still had the perception that patients showed up and and sat in waiting rooms. And now all of a sudden, your waiting room is a potential infection vector. So we had to change that. A lot of those elective procedures um, became a potential infection vector. So those were no longer necessary. You couldn't have visitors. you know, it, there was immediate impact on our revenue. I'll be honest, that was really tough to deal with. Some of the slow and steady income that you look at to pay to keep the lights on, like simple things like parking or elective procedures, gifts, shop, shops, or other kinds of things, we're no longer there. So we jumped into action and looked at what was necessary to support the, the increased stress on our emergency rooms and our COVID treatment center. We had to shed a lot of strategies and projects that perhaps weren't near-term beneficial. It's what I call pilot purgatory and project purgatory. If it didn't necessarily benefit our patients or if it didn't have any kind of revenue impact, perhaps it wasn't completely necessary right now. you got to come back to it. We were very lucky to be helped by some measures that our, our regulator took. So as much as we had to accelerate some streams, project streams, there's risk associated with that. Uh, you and I have talked about how shortcuts have sharp edges, right? You, If you make the wrong decision, the wrong leap, your know, bleeding edge can become much more of a uh, an acute care incident. So what we had to deal with there was, uh, well, what could we do? What did we have trust with? And listening to the guidance either internally from our subject matter experts or, or leaning on our vendors heavily or indeed the measures that OCR took were extremely beneficial. So telehealth had to be ramped up. Uh, almost overnight. OCR granted to the industry as a whole a relaxation in some of their enforcement postures. So technologies that hopefully you already had in play for enterprise collaboration, like Microsoft Teams or some of my peers work with Zoom, Uh, you accelerated those. So now that you had an outreach perspective for your patients, but by that same measure, you also had to examine, well, could that also be an enterprise collaboration platform? Because now you have teams that uh, are no longer sheltered behind that perimeter, that big plant mentality. So it's not just patients' it's also So now you had to extend your perimeter. You know, if, if you thought that one existed, it no longer did. So we leveraged things like Microsoft Teams and other collaboration platforms, not just as as outreach as telehealth, but also to keep that team cohesion going, to keep the lights on. on. Um, Teams is changing a lot of how we've worked in the past. You know, it's no longer emails and then wait 5, 10 minutes, 24 hours for a response. It's, it's, it's messaging. It's available pervasively, you know, with their cute little gifts and, and emojis and other kinds of things. So it was extremely beneficial. The other aspect of this is as much as we may or the industry took uh, necessary expediencies, the focus was also on, on giving the best patient care that but also making sure we look after our staff members. There was a huge element of this where not only are frontline workers exposed to the virus disproportionately. You know, we have staff members who all of a sudden now to deal with care issues, or we've got elder care issues, or, or maybe some of your staff have chronic issues. Um, I know at this point it might have been doom and gloom, but you know, you had to look after your, your, your staff as well so that you could leverage what they're doing. Security in healthcare is always a people problem, right? Your people are your best, but also sometimes your worst asset. So we had to be empathic. You and I had discussed sometimes about how we're living in a world where we are all now that BBC reporter with his toddlers running in behind them. You know, that that was also an element. And I know I've touched upon a, a bunch of things there. The immediate impact was coping with the influx of patients preparing, but also dealing with, you know, how to keep the lights on and but also how to keep your staff motivated throughout you know some pretty stringent circumstances it was it was tough
0: that team piece has been hard for everybody i think i gave a talk over the weekend actually at B-Side san antonio about that centered a lot on the fatigue that we're all experiencing right now that even the best prepared best equipped people you know this is not an easy time to work and it's especially a challenge you know especially if you had an onsite sock and you, now you're suddenly everybody's remote or something of that nature If you've got thoughts on that, I'd love to hear, you know, how you manage your team through this, because we talk a lot about the technology impacts of COVID and, you know, the attacker impacts of COVID. But I haven't heard very many people go deep into how they kept their teams sane. You know, if you've got thoughts on that, I'd love to hear.
1: Yeah, I was lucky. Uh, I've inherited a team that's already multi-state, so they're already accustomed to working virtually. Uh, But I couldn't necessarily say that about some of our constituents that the the staff are working with. But you know, we did have to change some of our uh, mentality. Like, for instance, obviously, no more face-to-face meetings, so you're doing virtual ones. Uh, no more the ability to go grab a a coffee talk or coffee office uh, visit. Now you're you're kind of scheduling those ad hoc, and you're drinking coffee remotely. Or, you know, God forbid, if you are able to drink something a little bit more uh, spurn, you're doing those virtual happy hours remotely. I've also heard some of my colleagues talk about, you know, do those goofy things that act to build your team and keep morale running. Have your crazy hair day virtual conferences. Have your everybody's wearing pajamas conferences. It's good, but as you were saying, there a lot of security teams, a lot of security operations staff. They're already oversubscribed. Stress is an issue. It's far too easy to uh, you know, get into your office, your home office if you have one, at you know eight o'clock in the morning and not get up at all so you know remember to take those breaks Andy Ellis from Akamai has a lovely phrase which is also when you go into your office remind whoever else is in the house with you that you're working you know make sure you're dressing up that you're groomed to the extent that you can so that mentally you're in the right headspace that that you're still going to the office and and you might come out for lunch or a bathroom break but you may not be available to walk the dog or empty the dishwasher, but you know we also need to accept the fact that people are people. We're human, right? So allow for some expediencies. Uh, allow to take some some measures to be empathic, to be human. You know, if somebody has a childcare issue, screaming children on concult, we've all been dealing with it, right? Dogs barking on concult, we're dealing with it. Um, you know, it's necessary to, to think about your staff, to think about their morale, to think about their fatigue. It, it's far too easy to isolate yourself. And when you isolate yourself, you're losing that human element where, where the workspace pulls you out of that. Indeed, some staff may not have a choice. They may, may be isolated at home. So, you know, a video con can be a lifeline. The other aspect of that is some of the things that we'll be dealing with at the human element from COVID are going to be exacerbated, you know, you know, stress or or other kinds of things. It's good to leverage virtual conferences to kind of break that ice, to reach out. You know, one of the things we've been doing is things like quizzes, certainly with my family. They're good. It's challenging. They're not easy. Sometimes when it's your turn to do the quizzes, you know, it takes additional work, right? But, you know... It's good to be empathic. It's good to be human. It's good to keep that morale going. It's good to take what you used to do physically and now do it virtually. Whether it's checking in or one-on-ones, turn on the video camera. Definitely, you know, let people know you're there. That's if your your line will support it. The other issue to this is sometimes uh, some of your staff may not have had a really good internet connection. Now they have no choice. Right? Yeah. Um, they may not have had the microphones or video cameras, so and they were unable to buy them um, because everybody else was doing it at the same time. Never mind this huge crunch on PPE. There was this huge crunch on virtual conferencing technology. So just be forgiving, be human and and move on. But by that same measure, check in, measure, make sure your team is being productive. Keep things moving forward. The bad guys are not taking a break. You got to remember that.
0: Well, and then the numbers I saw were the bad, you know, the 300% increase in attacks over this time. You know, in some yeah. ways, the bad guys uh, I was saying about like ransomware authors, this is, this is effectively a time where you're guaranteed your customers are going to pay and they'll pay higher prices because they are under stress. They're under load. They don't have time. You know, whereas before, maybe I would take a week and worry about, you know, like, see if I can unlock the files and all that kind of stuff in the middle of the things you guys have been going through. Not possible. Right. And so the, the bad guys know that.
1: Yeah. So. Uh, so, so some of the the ransomware coalitions or they announced that they would take a break. I mean, there is no Geneva Convention and there is yeah. no equivalent from a cybercrime perspective. They did not do so. that kind of allowance, you know, lasted very, very short time frame. So if they did it, great, thank you guys, but I, I would really appreciate a little bit more forbearance. When you're dealing with a potential issue with a patient, the last thing you want to do is make that connection harder to deal with. You know, right. the more security you add, it tends to add a necessary inconvenience. And the rule of thumb here is we want to inconvenience the bad guys, but the bad guys are not taking a break, they're not making it easier. So we certainly have a plausibility issue here where We're trying to jump to light speeds to introduce these new technologies, and and the bad guys are already there waiting and setting pitfalls and traps. It wasn't just the 300% increase in phishing or business email compromises or or ransomware. They're also going after the home network, right? If you sent users home and and their device wasn't secured appropriately, did the home router attack your your work computer? Uh, DLNA or UPnP device attack? Who knows? The printer itself becomes an issue. Things like you don't have a shredder at home. So, you know, if you have an unwise employee printing something, how is it getting disposed of securely? A lot of those foundational elementary steps are where healthcare tries to get it done. And and very often, if you look at the wall of shame from from HIPAA, it tends to fail. So, you know, encryption and multi factor and email hygiene, the and printing hygiene and physical attacks are, are where the bad guys come up against us. And and now that you have this new remote workforce, now they have new avenues, they have new vectors. For instance, if they're going to send an email, well, is that email gonna to go to your personal email? You know, Is your work computer, is your VPN now split tunnel? So maybe your Hotmail or your Gmail is now accessible where it wouldn't have been if they were on the premise. But by that same measure, if you block a link, do you have that level of endpoint control? and is that link actually going to be blocked on the remote endpoint if you're doing it at the infrastructure the bad guys did not take a break i mean you and i were joking that um you know the bad guys do some things better than than enterprise it in particular encrypt or they certainly if you look at ransomware they're doing a better job encrypting than, than the blue teams right not only did we have to accelerate quickly, but we had to overcome some of those functional challenges. We've accelerated, and I can hope that we haven't postponed much maintenance. I can hope that what grew in, in the shadow of COVID wasn't a lot of shadow IT, that these homegrown remedies aren't worse than the actual complaint. We won't know. Now is certainly the time, uh, if you're in a state that you've been able to return to work and you've been able, your revenue impact has been such that you can start putting back on more of those medium to long-term strategies. Now is the time to unroll some of those. I certainly hope that you took the expedient measures to flag something that you knew was a short-term fix that had to be revisited. Hopefully you prepared. Again, it was about being resilient. I also hope for the record, if, if you allow me to stand on a soapbox for the record, that some of the security teams use this opportunity to align with the business. We saw during the pandemic that Zoom were unfairly victimized for having perhaps not a level of, of security rigor that we would have liked to see. I applaud what Citizens Lab did with that security analysis of Zoom, but realistically speaking, Zoom's gone and, and came out of the ground. They didn't expect a thousand-fold increase in customers. If some of the people are, are listening to your podcast You know were an impediment to progress or security or stood on principle rather than uh, being pragmatic you failed at the first ask of hipaa that first you do no harm so i don't victimize zoom i think they did a fantastic job i hope they continue to do so i certainly applaud what ocr did as well and they allowed us to use things like apple facetime and Google Hangouts. So ho- hopefully you incorporated that into your planning and didn't just you know, prohibit access to patients who are scared as much as our staff are.
0: With that, you segued really wonderfully into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, so, so you mentioned OCR did relax a bunch of rules, specifically around certain platforms being available to use for telehealth. Do you feel like that's about to snap back and hit a, hit a lot of people, both that and some of the things that happened during this time, like CCPA, well, you know, it's been coming for a while, but now it's coming for real. You know, how do you see that, and 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 the OCR coming back, and additional regulations? Like, what are you thinking?
1: I think OCR did great, but Azar did flag um, during the week that these kind of exemptions aren't going to be any kind of long term fix. You know, as much as it was a bandaid, we we need to look at attacking the problem at the at the root, and I think. Certainly around some of the telehealth issues, hopefully at this point you've been able to get a risk assessment done. You've partnered appropriately. I do think the exemptions that OCR put in play for public data sharing are probably gonna persist until we get a vaccine in play. Yeah. Uh, some of those kind of privacy exemptions. I do think some of what OCR has done to make sure that uh, some of the states didn't victimize pre existing conditions or disallow uh, certain populations for, uh, particularly around age, from getting access to some of these things. I can hope that that kind of capitalist market that was created for PPE doesn't exist. That's not something that I thought was very productive on making sure that states had access to this equipment when we needed it. But CCPA, GDPR, um, you know, these kinds of ones and other kinds of ones that are starting to come online, I'm a privacy advocate. I can hope that you are being proactive and getting ahead of some of these requirements and putting together those, those systems or, or maybe to tokenize or to mask or to de-identify so that you're attacking the problem at its root. Uh, hopefully you're partnering with your vendors, you're leaning on them heavily. It's a business problem at its root, right? Um, not only are you impacting the business culture, the organization as a whole, those states, those regulations that you're subject to, ultimately it, it's, it's a lot of compliance. A lot of it is is nuance and you know hopefully you're getting ahead of it i don't think it's going to exist for very much longer by that same measure i do want to touch upon something you and i had talked about which was the way vendors attempted to capitalize and 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 in heavy on this so throughout this emergency you know every vendor was being overly helpful and and giving you all of their products for free even if it had nothing to do with COVID. that was less than helpful in my opinion i understand the need from a startup mentality to to try and help and to leverage every opportunity but you know, these, I was getting almost as many spam calls from vendors as fish as I was getting from bad guys. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was less than helpful. I give them the benefit of the doubt their intent was to help because uh, the startups, everybody who works in that, that world is also some of our patients. So I feel for them and, and they do want to contribute, but they need to understand that it's not necessarily a priority unless it has a direct impact on our patient care
0: and our, our staff care, you know. I don't think I sent you the blog entry that I wrote a few months ago. I was so frustrated by everything you were just talking about. It was actually the thing that kicked off this blog entry was I saw a friend of mine who, like you said, heart in the right place, offer healthcare organizations free phishing testing during this time. And I thought, what is what is the last thing I want to do to a doctor who's worked for a hundred hours this week and is exhausted is fake fish them right now. Like how to be hated as a security organization within your hospital. Right. And it was just like, I get the point that, but actually I went off on this whole rant about, look, you can either make money during this time. Like you said, there's lots of those capitalist people selling PPE. There's, there's people who do that, or you can build trust with the people that are in your community and are part of your, you know, your customer ecosystem, we would absolutely have done anything for anybody who wanted help during that time. But the last thing you needed was for me to call you and be like five times a week. Hey man, need help? I'll help. Like that's the last thing that anybody needs when they're stressed out. I've been on your side of the table, right? I've been, I've been a CISO. I get the vendor the vendor noise. It's like, ah, oh, so frustrating. All right. Let me take a, di- a different direction cuz you said something really important that I wanted to hit on. You said I'm a privacy advocate. And you and I kind of kind of touched on this much of the really interesting privacy stuff that's going to happen over the next couple of years, both with contact tracing, but also yep. we're really moving into an era of wearables and and I think, you know, remote health is become is going to become even more of a big deal than it's been to this point we're starting into this world of like personalized health being part of, you know, being attached to this device. Right. And so, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on the contact tracing stuff, especially malware vendors like NSO offering to get into contact tracing? Like there's so many interesting places we can go here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And actually NSO wasn't forbidden from their export license by the Israeli uh, justices. I think you need to plan as, as much as you can. I think if you're, Waiting for the federal government to chime in with some sort of privacy guidance or the FDA to help you around these these biomedical devices, you, you're lost, you're done. I do like some of the industry consortiums that are stepping up there around those connected health, those devices that are increasingly available at home. You know, I also like that stunt that, I forget the name of the company in Florida, that they pulled on St. Jude's. It was Justine Bone.
0: Uh, the, med, the MedSec people. MedSec,
1: there you yes. go. Yeah, I thought that was funny to galvanize interest. Can we do better? Absolutely. We we need to. The issue here is is a lot of these vendors that healthcare is to partner with are mining that data for other purposes. So you know, Fitbit isn't going to necessarily work with that's a broad example. I'm not going to accuse Fitbit of everything. But you know, if you want to aggregate some of your biometrics or you want to aggregate some of your other kinds of statistics into your healthcare platform. And if you're going to use that vendor as a as scrubbing service, what are they doing with that? Uh, These ones that help with your health or dietary concerns, is it great to establish a relationship with your physicians and clinicians? Absolutely. It will help patients and they can focus on behaviors which aren't necessarily some of what a, a surgeon would necessarily focus on. But speaking as an industry professional, I have concerns that if you're not paying for something, it's because you're the product, right? Right, always. And contact tracing, I have similar fears around. If you're not paying for that, well, what are these people who are giving it to you going to do with it? So we had spoken around NSO and such. Mm-hmm. Certainly the, the level of technology that is available in a mobile platform right now is tremendous. And I hope it's a force for good. Um, but if you look at what the NSO group can do, if you look at what the, the stunt pulled in, in Europe with NCRO chat, you don't need to interject or hijack the vendor or the cloud service anymore. Your population can potentially install a Trojan. Maybe there's something in the Play Store or the App Store that your users can, can install. And what's that going to do with that data? Is that going to scrape your device? There's a lot of concern recently over TikTok, for instance, scraping data and sending it to certain governments, right? It's an absolute real concern. You certainly, from a corporate perspective, you, you need to make sure that you're monitoring for those mobile devices, that you're, you're putting together that kind of posture assessment and, and hygiene. I hope that we can leverage that more. Those kind of privacy benefiting locations can be more useful for authentication and authorization, and yeah. maybe steps towards zero trust. You know, I hope that our users aren't concerned that we're necessarily going to be looking at their their photos of their grandmother or uh, things of that nature. But it, we do encounter those issues. Mobile devices are replacing laptops. They're replacing computers. And I do worry about that. I like the way Apple are doing health care and making sure that some of this stuff never leaves the device. I applaud Google for stepping up and working with the federal government around several initiatives. Android is a moving target, in my opinion. It's very hard to secure. It is. But they're getting better. But, you know, when it comes to privacy right now, it's, it's kind of, you know, caveat emptor that the buyer needs to be informed. And, uh, you know, I think there's money to be made in making it too easy to be insecure. I worry about some of our brethren in the, the social media space. That's, yeah. that's what they do. They create all of this data mining opportunity and they scrape your data and sell it. But certainly there's no perception yet that you are your data and, and you own your data. I think that was the heart of what we were trying to achieve with GDPR and CCPA and we'll see i mean i don't trust a politician to get anything done in this day and age (laughs) no but it it, it would be nice if there was a little bit of help i do also applaud by the way to go back to an earlier topic dhs and and cisa were great through this pandemic and and, and alerting us when there were particular issues the ISACs and the information sharing consortiums also helped but there isn't necessarily something that's equivalent from the privacy space and i think it's it's room for improvement I'm a big, I thought, you know, one of the things that would get blockchain off the ground would be that concept of differential privacy and putting it in, in the hands of the consumer. But, you know, blockchain isn't at a level yet where your grandmother could use it. And it's far too easy to lose some of those settings and expose yourself, in my opinion. Well, I don't know if that really answers your question, Michael. but That's some of my course, thoughts.
0: Of course, it does, and I just like I just like getting you sort of off on your soapbox. Um, I mean, social media is the definition of if it's free, you're the product, right? That's really where that model started—is the Facebooks, the LinkedIn's, et cetera, et cetera. With that, I know we've been talking for a while. I want to kind of wrap up with the thing that we do at the end of everything, giving you a crystal ball for a second. You know, take your crystal ball out. What is the next? three-ish years in healthcare security look like? Because I think healthcare security is very different than everywhere else. So that's my first sort of hypothesis. But what do you think are the big parts of the next three years, especially things we haven't maybe talked about? Because I I think privacy and everything you just said, that is a lot of the next three years. But I think there's a lot of other things too. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. I think there's
1: a lot of elementary blocking and tackling that needs to be applied consistently in healthcare. And I'm not speaking about my organization. I'm speaking as the industry as a whole, I think there's an over-reliance on compliance, there's over-reliance on insecurity, and it's not necessarily been designed from the ground up to be secure, to be private. And I do think, you had touched upon this earlier, biomedical device security is going to become an increasing issue. You know, Every three months, we get a new Mirai equivalent or something like that, which is the latest IoT piece of botware, right? Um, it is a concern, but now... As you had mentioned, these implantables, these wearables, these adoption of consumer-level technology is is a concern for me. So I think we need to do some better rigor in that space. Obviously, that's a huge issue. You've got this, uh, not only just this global information warfare, you're dealing with all these attacks on the supply chain. Uh, You're dealing with all these accusations from different national governments over one doing something and the other one doing something. Who who knows? Uh, And they're starting to arrest citizens at this point. It's a little... Interesting, shall we say. So to answer your question, I would think healthcare IoT or biomedical, you know, at home is going to be interesting. I can hope that there's an increasing maturity. Uh, Hopefully that these healthcare organizations who've been slow to adopt the cloud uh, do so to scale out and meet customer demand and be able to help their patients. But in doing so, they also adopt a more secure model. Certainly easier to do in the cloud then to architect on prem, which has been our traditional way of doing things. I do hope to see around identity and access management, I would hope zero trust becomes easier to adopt. I think continuous assessment, continuous validation is hugely interesting. And, you know, Dr. Cunningham over in Forrester, you know, I, I always view his seminars when he does them. At its heart, it starts with, do you know what assets are on your network? Do you know where your data is? And I think that's a problem across the entire industry and hopefully we step up. You, you okay? You banged your mic? <laughs> yeah,
0: I smacked my mic there. Sorry about that. Yes, uh, I, I, I'm in such violent agreement that I'm slapping my microphone around. I completely agree. All right, with that, thank you, dude. Seriously, this has been so much fun. Where can people find more of you? You know, like uh, Where can they go to hear your writing, to hear what you have to think?
1: Uh, it tends to be just on, on LinkedIn. I, I do tend to speak about once a month or so. I'll be on Secure World Boston shortly. I'll be on uh, the healthcare uh, Internet of Things forums. And I have a couple of other speaking engagements lined up over the summer and into the fall. You know, really, it's about a dialogue. One of the things that I miss about conferences and, and these kinds of sessions is meeting people and having these sidebars. It's far too easy to censor yourself when you're being recorded, right? Yeah. It's nice to check in with my peers and say, hey is this vendor full of it or are they really helping you, right? It's nice to combat that FUD, but also to get that word from the people who are actually on the front lines. And, you know, if I'm interested in technology, I'll reach out to my network. If you're one of those people and you meet me at a conference, either virtually or physically, please do come up and talk, ask good questions. There's no bad questions. We're all in the same boat. The issue is this perception that the rising tide is going to lift all boats some of our industries and organizations are in super yachts yeah. and some of the other ones are in life rafts. So, you know, as we're increasing our, our ability to react and combating these adversaries, it feels sometimes that we're in the Renaissance age, we're crafting every single tool as if it was a silver bullet. And forget about that. The, the bad guys are, are in the space age and they're fighting each other with uh, you know, lightsabers. So you know, I certainly encourage open dialogue. You know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Reach out to me if I'm at a conference, and you know, it'll be good to talk.
0: I completely agree, and same. I mean, we talked about it the other day. I miss the let's just go grab a beer part of this whole of this whole community. So everything that Esmond says, I think everybody who's ever met me knows the same. Like come talk to me, come, let's, let's continue this dialogue. There's not enough of us having this conversation. So with that, Esmond, thank you so much. You know, it's been a blast. we would love to have you back sometime. This is cool. always, in, always interesting and always insightful, but thanks again.
1: Thank you and best of luck, guys.
0: Up next is the latest installment of Vital Signs, where the Scope security team shares their insights and advice on issues we think the healthcare security community should know about. Today I wanna talk about the useful life of medical devices and the challenge that that creates for cybersecurity. Medical devices are expensive. This is especially true when you talk about large and highly sophisticated medical devices. Examples being cardiology and radiology devices like a CT scanner or an MRI machine, or large scale systems like those that you'd find in a heart catheterization lab. These systems can easily run into the hundreds of thousands or millions, sometimes even above the millions into the 10 millions of dollars. Because of the price, these aren't pieces of equipment that can be replaced every couple of years, like your laptop. Nor do hospitals just have tons and tons of money sitting around to replace equipment that's already working. So, if you're a hospital administrator buying a new CT scanner and spending $2 million on it, you're investing in that equipment, expecting that it'll have a useful life in your hospital of 10, 15, or even 20 years at times. The challenge of this becomes evident when you realize that the FDA cybersecurity guidance for pre-market devices was first released in 2014. This means that only for the past six years have medical device manufacturers had to build towards stringent requirements for the security of their devices. And that many of the products that were built before 2014 because of this useful life challenge still are deployed in hospital today. The bigger challenge for the manufacturers, of course, is to build a product that can remain secure in the market for decades at a time. Imagine if you were a brilliant product developer back in 2005, uh, developing your state-of-the-art CT scanner running Windows XP. Uh, Imagine being in charge of securing that same Windows XP-based CT scanner still running in your hospital today and expected to run for the next five or six years. It's, it's not like you can just rip it out because you don't have the millions of dollars to replace it and the manufacturers are somewhat limited by the hardware and device that existed in 2005 when they deployed the machine. When people talk about medical device security, they don't realize that one of the first big hurdles we need to consider is this useful life challenge. It's incredibly challenging to build a computer system today that'll still be secure in 20 years. Thanks for joining us for this episode of InScope. To make sure you never miss an episode, hop on over to www.scopesecurity.com to sign up. Or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you have ideas for topics, guests, or technical tips, please contact us at podcast at scopesecurity.com.